My name's Ed Vasey and welcome to the Vasey View, production of Kindred Media. Hello and welcome to this week's uh, Vasey View, which has a cacophony of voices, which I hope you'll be able to navigate your way through, but it is a very exciting addition. I've got three guests. The first guest uh, really needs no introduction. It's Tony Blair, the former Prime Minister of the UK between 1997 and 2007. And the reason I wanted to talk to Tony Blair is that I think that he is one of the, if not the most thoughtful voice, certainly in the UK, on technology policy in the sense that he and his institute, the Global Institute, have developed a real narrative, possibly from his perspective, of how the progressive left could and should embrace technology to achieve the social policy outcomes that the left is traditionally associated with, health, education, uh, and narrowing the divide in society. And I think uh, he's absolutely fascinating on it. Tony is going to be joined in the discussion by my friend and mentor, Arie Burkoff, who is the co-founder of Liontree, and Liontree sponsored this podcast. But Arie is one of the foremost technology and media bankers in the US, but is a very thoughtful man who uh, often uh, reflects in his own podcast on how technology is changing society. And I thought uh, the engagement between Tony and Arie is going to be fascinating in terms of a US perspective and a UK perspective. That's the first half of the podcast. And after Tony and Arie uh, depart, I'm going to speak to Chris Yu, who works at the Global Institute for Tony Blair and is, in fact, the guy who writes the technology policy manifesto alongside Tony Blair. Uh, and we're going to take a high level view with Tony and Arie and then with Chris, dive a bit deeper into some of the specific issues uh, that the Global Institute is working on as far as technology policy is concerned. So without further ado, let's start the conversation with Tony and Arie. So Tony, let's just begin with uh, the central question. You say that technology is the central question of our time. You comment on lots of other important issues facing the UK and the world, whether it's Brexit or coronavirus. But when things are relatively normal, you've taken up technology as a major theme. And you say that really, not only is technology the central question of our time, but there's actually a sort of divide between those who get this, who understand that, and those who haven't yet worked that out. Could you expand on that a bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's the way, the way of looking at it in political terms is it's it's like the 19th century industrial revolution. I mean, if you if you think um, back and read about those times, I mean, it, it began. It turned into this completely transformative um, force, changed everything about the way people lived and worked and the way communities were, and eventually but actually only after several decades, it then transformed politics. And the issue really today is this 21st century technology revolution is going to change everything. Um, you, know, you can see this indeed during, during the COVID crisis, it's changed the way that we, we, we work, um, it's changed the way that we live. And if you think over the next 20 years, it will change healthcare, education, transport, law and order, it will change the way government works, it will change the way we look at the world, and it will change every single company and every single walk of life. And so it is this all-encompassing revolution, and yet I think there's a part of the public that worries that it's it's all taking place without their consent and it's going to displace jobs and it's 
or very frightening. And then there's a part of um, the rest of the people who say, well, it's you, you, and I would include myself in this, who say, look, it's a fact. So you've got to understand it, master it, and harness it. And that, I think, is what is the big political challenge. So, Ari, you are at the coalface in terms of the U.S., and the U.S. is seen, obviously, as where everything happens first. Do you see a similar change happening in the U.S., a similar divide, if you like, powering ahead with technology on one hand? First, Ed, thank you very much for having us. And I completely am honored to be in the presence of Tony talking about the government and technology intersections. And I think what Tony just articulated is perfectly said, but I don't think it's a U.S. phenomenon to your question. I think it's a global dynamic, which is really the essence of what technology brings, which is reach. And technology doesn't really have a consideration for different languages and cultures as much as the final um, extension of its innovation. And at the end of the day, I think a lot of people believe that uh, technology from a governmental perspective, is all about how you run a campaign and using social media and digital advertising targeting. But I think it's much deeper than that in terms of its innovation. And I agree that the pandemic is the ultimate accelerant to all these trends and also shines a light on areas of our society and our industries which have not yet gone through digital transformation and sort of encourage the catch-up. And I think... uh, Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, said just at the beginning of COVID, this has taken two years of digital transformation and brought it into a two-month spurt. And that's exactly what's been happening. And, and there are industries that have yet to catch up. Healthcare, education are two very important ones. But then the overall mechanics of the government, I think, and how the innovation of government decision-making I think it's hallmark to the manifesto and Tony's platform now, uh, which I think is worth really delving into. But at, at the end of the day, my view is the best technology is the one that recedes into the background of impact and the output of what the technology is supposed to accomplish, which is you know just society, quality, and obviously innovation and growth for everybody, not just a zero-sum game. I do want to delve into that. And you've given me a nice segue into what I wanted to ask Tony about, which is that there are sort of two challenges, it seems to me, that technology is imposing on uh, government. One is uh, the sort of consumer challenge. You know, if I can get something in 24 hours from Amazon, why can't government services be the same? But there's also a sort of democratic challenge that government is uh, sort of under pressure, in a sense, from technology, the world of disinformation. Uh, I hesitate to use the word populism, but uh, the fact that, uh, you know, lies can run around the globe and it's very hard for government to keep up with that. So there are sort of twin challenges. There's a straightforward consumer challenge. How do I be a better government in a technology age? And there's the kind of disinformation challenge. How on earth can I articulate an argument in this cacophony of noise? Do you think that's a fair representation, Tony? Um, yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, in, in a funny way, I'm more interested in the, in the consumer aspect of it. I mean, I think the implications for politics are enormous. Um, I think social media has transformed the way politics is conducted, but actually not really for, for, for the betterment. 
of um, of politics uh, or humankind particularly, but I think it does, and I, I'm you know I'm interested in that because I'm in the business of politics. But the thing that I think is most important for politicians to see is because of course they'll think about that issue, and of course by the way they'll think about questions of privacy and you know how do you regulate Facebook and all the rest of it. But what really interests me is how do you take the transformative power of technology and harness it in a way that, for example, allows you to improve the quality of education for the poorest people, bring healthcare to the poorest parts of the world in a much more efficient way? How do you tackle climate change, uh, which can only be tackled ultimately by um, science and technology? Um, because otherwise you're telling the world it's got a choice between consuming and the environment. So. Yeah, I think these are the things that really interest me. And what they require, of course, from government is government's going to have a different skill set, different types of people coming into it. And probably you need a, a different and more strategic government. And, you know, you, you know it from the work that you did as a minister. I think there was a, a time when, for example, the UK government was very focused on this, but I, I think... It's not so much now, and I also think there's a there's a risk that um, you know because for the very reasons that Aria was giving, which is you, you know this this is this enormous global force that it gets bound up with a kind of um, anti-globalization politics, and we end up not understanding that ultimately this technology is immensely liberating, as I say, if we understand it and harness it. That's fascinating. I mean, there, it, there is a paradox. I mean, obviously, one doesn't want to get, disappear down a rabbit hole talking about the politics of Brexit, but there may be something in the fact that people feel, to a certain extent, paradoxically, that technology is taking away control of their lives and people want more control of their lives. But Arya, in a, the US, funny enough, the British are quite keen occasionally to point out that actually the US is quite backward in terms of the digital services it offers if you want to open a checking account in the US or whatever. Is the US government across this agenda? Well, I mean, the, the US government uh, does have uh, a, I would say, around industries that could be uh, fully digitized with the encouragement of the government. They're trying to do that in areas like transport and obviously uh, broadband access. But it takes a long time to accomplish these things, I think, I believe, in the public sector. The private sector has a real speedboat approach. And I think what you're seeing from these technology goliaths in the stock market, in the, in, the, in the capital markets today, that really kind of hold most of the market capitalization, that's really going to, I think, permeate into other industries going forward in sort of a growth transformation mode where you get into financial technology, healthcare technology, food technology, and start to really disrupt these industries, just uh, staying with education, because I think that's probably the area that's most pronounced during this pandemic of having to be disrupted. When you look at the top 10 companies in the S&P 500 or, or the FTSE or, or whatever you look at, and you look at where they are today versus which companies existed 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, they're completely different. But if I told you, here's a list of the top universities in the U.S. or in the U.K. or around the world, they're exactly the same as they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And that could be because of some sense of establishment and nostalgia and quality, but also lacks 
disruption and digitization embedded in that trend. So that's going to change, in my view. I know, and that is that is the paradox, I think, Tony, which is that um, you know in the US there's a big tech clash going on about uh, the monopolistic tendencies of tech, but actually government is the real uh, monopoly, and uh, it's very hard to disrupt government. Yeah, no, it, it, it is. And the one thing I will say to people is that, you know, if, if uh, the, the Labour Prime Minister from 1945, Clement Attlee, came back to Britain today, um, you know, he would think the entire world had changed um, in terms of our industry, our services, the way we live, the way we thought, the complexion of our country. But he'd go back into the seat of government and feel completely at home. That's the, the the challenge for government, because there are, you know, government should regard itself as using technology in order to empower the citizen. For example, one of the things we look at in the work we do in Africa is how digital ID can help change the interaction of government with the citizen in a way that allows the citizen better access to services and cuts out a lot of corruption. It's one of the things that India has has done in the last few years, actually quite successfully. But everywhere you look, as as Ari was just saying, this process of digitization and and the changes that are going to happen, um, they're just going to increase at pace. And the other thing, of course, is that in the big geopolitical question, which is America's relationship with China, the position of technology in that is absolutely central, as we've seen from debates in recent days. Um, around TikTok and so on, it called politics. The big challenge, in my view, is to get a grip on this, to grasp its importance, and to re-engineer politics around it. And the, the strange thing is that at the very moment when, frankly, that is not really a left-right matter. It's a change that's happening of a profound nature, driven from outside of politics, but with massive practical implications for people. You know, the very moment when you require people who are, are skilled in this, understand it, and have practical solutions, politics has gone very ideological, left and right. It's a crazy thing, really, because you need to try and establish some form of political consensus around this, because that's the way you will get a policy environment that's predictable and helpful. It is interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, it sort of answers your first point about technology being the central question, because the emerging Cold War between China and the US is about technology. The Cold War between the Soviet Union and the West was about ideology. Where do you think this is going to go between China? I'd love to hear both Arie and Tony on, on where you think the US-China tech standoff is going to go. I have to say what Tony just said was worth really pausing on because I totally agree. Tony, he just really laid out the exact forward-looking world order and how technology is sort of the blood in the veins between geopolitical factors. And also the inverse is true. It's a very complex topic because it's driving relationships between superpowers. It's also has at stake individuality among citizens and, and digital identity. And at the end of the day, when you have a cross-border factor that's so big, like technology is a broad term, how do you govern it? How do you regulate it? Because ultimately, it doesn't have borders. And how do you then intersperse the 
political goals of a particular region or particular country with its uh, ability to innovate and foster and house global companies that have technologies that, that cross over between borders, sometimes countries that don't get along with each other. Very difficult topic and we need to understand it better. Yeah, no, I think this is absolutely at the crux of the way the world develops. So the way I, I see it is that if you take America and the West relationship with China, my view is it's bound to become in some dimensions confrontational, is already of course, but bound to become more so. It will in some respects be competitive and technology will be one area of competition, but you have also to reserve then a space for cooperation because it's very difficult to deal with the global challenges we face, take climate, take the pandemic or stabilization of the world economy. It's hard to deal with these issues without the cooperation of China. So what would be sensible from a policy point of view are two things. Number one, that given the importance of technology in this relationship, America and Europe should cooperate together. Um, they should try and create some common standards around technology. And they should realize that ensuring that they're supporting and helping develop the next generation of technology advance is massively in the interests of the Western world. And therefore, they've got to approach policy making from a standpoint of how do you create the most healthy environment for these companies to, to grow and the need to be powerful. At the same time, how do you create a situation in which there may be, for example, in areas like healthcare, and there could be many others, in which if you decouple from China completely, you lose the benefit of some of the groundbreaking technology that's going to be developed in China. So you need to see this again, instead of, as it were, looking at the geopolitics first, and then simply trying to work out how you manage the technology. If you refracted that and did it in a different way, it's also important to look at what is going to happen in technology in the future and what bearing does that then have on how America and Europe look at policy in respect of technology. This is again just emphasizes to my mind the degree to which this understanding of and ability to harness technology is right at the center of the debate because otherwise it makes no sense to try and formulate a strategic framework for your relationship with China in the 21st century. I love the way this conversation has gone because we started by me asking you whether the divide between those who see technology as a central question and those that don't and I started really with that question thinking in a deeply conventional way which is you know technology is transforming the way we hire taxis so we need to think about it and we've ended up with China and the US and the new cold war when I sort of try and compare it a bit to nuclear weapons in the 80s we got very excited when there were summits in Reykjavik and salt treaties and really what I think you're saying is that the new world order and the relationship between states is actually going to be driven by trying to see consensus on technology policies. We keep going big picture, but I think what Tony is actually saying from my lens is start with what the basic needs of a society are 
and what the consumer really needs. And don't let yourself elevate into nuclear wars or geopolitics or technology innovation. Let's talk about food supply as an example. After you figure out where you want to live, you figure out how you're going to eat. And food supply is completely getting reworked by technology. And there's a massive interdependence between China and the U.S. in this area. That's what the whole you know, trade agreement has been about with farmers, et cetera. So food supply is one area of what the consumer needs that is getting revolutionized by technology and also plays into global politics. So I think you have to go back to like what the essential needs of a society are and how is technology going to work with government to deliver those things? Because ultimately that's what we care about is how you're going to get through the day. How are you going to get through a happy life that can sustain with, with all the things that you need? And technology is playing into that across borders. No, I, I think this is absolutely vital. And by the way, to be able to reserve some space for cooperation on technology with China would be important. Well, I think that's right. And let me just crawl back to a position of credibility in this uh, three-way, which is just to end on a note of optimism from both of you, I hope, Tony and Arie. I think what I'm trying to say is that any head of state, any whether it's a president or the head of the EU or the president of China, when they have their calls, technology should be front and centre of what they're discussing. The interconnectedness is not going to go away and how you start to have a conversation about technology at this kind of level? The first group of politicians that work out how to weave this technology revolution into a narrative of optimism are the ones that will succeed. Because in the end, of course, for all the challenges it's going to provide for us, its solutions are to our problems. It's immense. It's an immense field that can give you a lot of cause for optimism. And that's what people need. I mean, they default to populism and people to blame and a counterproductive form of politics, in my view, when they're pessimistic, when they think there's not a hopeful future. And the truth of the matter is, properly harnessed, technology will allow us to feed the world, to look after it, to educate it much better. I agree. I think that the conversations between governments around technology should have a two-sided coin. One is plugging the holes of the weaknesses and dangers of technology in a more regulated and safe fashion so that everyone has comfort that there's a an oversight mechanism. And two is to talk about the upside, the competitive advantages, the ways that we can improve our lives, as, as Tony just said. And I, I think that's probably good management period for any business, right? You, you, you plug the holes of the dangers and you kind of shine a light on the upside to make sure that's properly uh, adhered to and invested in. Uh, and I think if you have that dual approach of the shadow and the light around technology, I think that the, the world could be a better place, hopefully. Fantastic. Well, thank you both very much. You're both very busy people. I'll leave you both to go and uh, save the world. <laughs> Thanks very much, Ed. Thanks, Arie. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Tony. Great to talk to you. That was an absolutely fascinating discussion. As I say, I think it took us from why technology policy is central for any policymaker to why technology policy is, in fact, the framework for international relations. But I wanted now to turn to Chris Yu, who, as I said in my introduction, does a lot of the policy work with Tony Blair at the Global Institute and delve deeper into some of these specific issues. So, Chris, in terms of the conversation between Tony and 
Ari there. One of the things, obviously, that, that Tony said diplomatically was that um, tech seems to have slightly fallen off uh, the government's agenda. And I think by that he meant that, you know, for a period in the noughties, digitising government services and so on was very much front and centre of what people were talking about. And I think, you know, there is a, a feeling, as I said, that government is a monopoly and it's hard to disrupt. Do you share that, that, that tech has fallen off the government's agenda? Where are the gaps? Where should it be picking it up to try and move it forward? Because I do feel very strongly, as I say, this divide between what I can do as a private citizen with private companies providing me as service as a consumer and what I can do with government is, is growing bigger. Yeah, look, I completely agree. I think the divide is getting bigger. And I think it's much more of a risk now than maybe it was in the past. 10 years ago, when we were starting the um, you know, modernize the state, um, move services online discussions um, for that stage, you kind of felt that maybe the experience you had with uh, government services or dealing with your local council online was going to be a little bit um, behind what you find on your smartphone. But you cut people some slack because you understood the government was difficult. And you never expected it to be cutting edge. Nowadays, we are so used to the technology that we have in our pockets that I think there's a risk when citizens are massively unimpressed by government services um, that that destroys trust in the system. Um, and I think you put your finger on it in terms of this question of competition, right? So you've seen every other sector of the economy turned on its head by disruptive insurgents who've not necessarily used cutting edge technology. What they've used is often commodity technology assembled in a clever way to attack a specific problem. And government is largely free of that pressure because it has a monopoly that comes with the system of government that we've inherited from the industrial era. So you've got to break into that and find a way to make some progress. If I look at what's happened in the UK in recent years, it seems like there was a great surge of um, enthusiasm and GovUK won design awards and uh, you know, we rationalised lots of things into one place and it made enormous strides. And then it got difficult because you get into the bit where you have to fix all the plumbing underneath rather than fix the, the bit that the citizen sees. And you have such tremendous bureaucratic inertia. I struggle to see, in all honesty, Ed, whether you can change that from within or whether you need to actually stand up some alternative models to apply some of the pressure, test different ways through, and have citizens show us what they want rather than have um, people sitting at the centre thinking they know best. I totally agree with you. The only way you can really do this somehow is to provide some sort of competition, which actually sort of brings me on to the narrative that you and Tony Blair are putting out there, which I think is fascinating because, to put it sort of slightly crudely, you come from a centre-left position. And there are three scenarios. So scenario one is that the progressive left, let's call it the progressive left, fights the old battles, you know, who owns the railways or whatever. Scenario two, which is sort of linked to scenario one, is the progressive left opposes technology. If Uber is undermining black cabs, Uber must be bad. If delivery services are not providing workers' rights, we must regulate them, which is perfectly respectable. But scenario three, I think, is by far the most interesting, which is the progressive left should embrace technology because the benefits of technology will bring what progressives want. It will narrow the divide. It will give people from any walk of life first class health care. It will give anyone the opportunity to have a first class education. But to a certain extent, if that is going to be the scenario, there has to be a slight holding of noses 
in the sense that I think you can only bring it about if you unleash an element of competition. You're not going to get necessarily healthcare changing unless there are alternative models that patients can use. I think there may be a little bit of holding your noses, but I also think um, the clue is in the term progressive. Um, yeah. And if you take that back to this notion of wanting to secure progress and for that to be done with purpose and to benefit the largest number of people, um, then it's pretty obvious that um, you can't get there simply by incremental changes on the model of government and public services and running the economy that we've inherited from an era, frankly, before the internet. So you have to be prepared to be challenging. There's a difference of degree, right? So you can believe in radical remaking of the state, but you can believe that that should be done in a way which builds on what we have rather than being enormously destructive of it. For me, the crux of it comes down to this question of um, like lots of the industrial era trade-offs have been obliterated by technology. And particularly this point around in the past, you could do things at scale, but if you did them at scale, you could not optimize for quality. If you think about education as one particular example, sure, you can roll out, as we did over the last century, programs of education, which ensure that all kids have access to school and to learning and teaching. But we also know that the very best learning opportunities, the very best tuition has been the reserve of a small number of people who happen to live in the right place and whose parents and families have got sufficient funds to put them into the best schools and so on and so forth. And the truth now is that if you use technology in a smart way, there are enormous strides that you can make to bring the bottom of that distribution up. And look, it's not that anybody thinks that an AI-driven tutor is going to um, outperform the very best human tuition. Absolutely not saying that. But what you have got an opportunity to do is to bring the average up to a level which is good or great, and for that to be accessible to everybody, regardless of their background or circumstances. And that is something which everybody ought to be in favor of, whether you're on the progressive center-left or whether you are you know, somewhere else in the kind of center of the political debate. I think a lot of this is not about left or right anymore. Well, I, I totally agree with you. And it is about what I, my first question to Tony Blair, the divide between those who kind of get technology and those who, who don't, which sounds very pejorative. Maybe it is. Let's pretend to a certain extent that we're sort of um, running the government. <laughs> I look at the experience of my kids during lockdown and I have to say kind of digital learning was not ideal because essentially it was trying to recreate the classroom on a screen, which just doesn't work. I think the bit people miss about digitizing public services, it's not about moving them online. It's about completely transforming them. So let's take education. I would say the way you learn online is completely different and you could actually be learning online in the classroom, but the key is, you could be tested online, you can receive personalized learning, you can move at your own pace, you can cheat in inverted commas in the sense of the bits you don't understand, you can keep coming back to until you do get them, rather than say trying to fake it for a test. So there are enormous possibilities. I mean, do you see them emerging through osmosis or do you think government needs to kind of really grip this and try and ram it through? So I think that number one, you've got like a whole host of entrepreneurs and innovators around the edges of lots of these spaces that have been traditionally um, public service domains. So in education, in healthcare, right, with the raft of the startups starting to build consumer-facing 
apps and services that try to make your experience with the health service better and more efficient. And you see it in other domains as well. I think it's partly about government gripping it and providing you know, the right level of ambition. Um, and in some cases, you know, the support that goes with that. I think a lot of it, whether in education or elsewhere, is this question of what is the role of the state? And in a world where technology is very important, what um, infrastructure does the state need to provide so that entrepreneurs can build businesses, both for profit and public purpose driven, on top in ways that meet people's needs? So, you know, so much of the conversation about the role of the state is, as you were saying earlier, particularly on the left, is one about are we going to nationalize the railways or not? And what do we think about regulating the power companies? And how many more, uh, you know, motorways are we going to build? And I'm sure all of that is important and we're still going to need to move around the country and, and so on and so forth. But the much bigger question to my mind is what does the nation's digital infrastructure look like? Not just 5G and fiber. But what does our data infrastructure look like? What about the APIs for public services that you can build things that hook into government? What about all of the identity and other elements of the puzzle, which mean if they're in place, people can build things that meet citizens' needs and do that in a way which doesn't require you to be a 100-person team on the inside of a 100,000-person government department, but actually you can be 10 people building something in software, and if it's successful, scaling it rapidly and not be blocked by all of the bureaucracy and procurement and everything else that has held so much up in the past. The really hard part in all of this is just making sure that you protect the most vulnerable in the wake of all of the change. Well, that's exactly what my next point was going to be. I was going to concentrate as we sort of wind up on the three areas where I think reading your manifesto, where I think you sort of call for government action, I was going to say in the traditional sense, but you know there is obviously a role for government. One is obviously the digital divide, which you've just alluded to. How does government ensure that everyone has access? You know, Let's say that health and education in particular evolve to this kind of personalised service driven by technology. How do we ensure people aren't left behind by that, whether you're somebody who's elderly and to whom all this is really kind of quite alien or somebody who may not perhaps have the resources or income to access the kind of technology that's needed. Yeah, I think on this, it's clearly so important because without the internet, most of the other um, opportunities that we're talking about are not possible. It seems to me there's a role, and this is a kind of global question, Ed, there's a role for government and for private sector partners around this question of sort of universal service obligations and how do we ensure that you know, the vast majority of not everybody on the planet has connectivity. I do think there's something that we've got to get to the bottom of in the debate, right, which is about skills and user experience and everything else, which is to do, I think, a lot with if you design services well, I think you ameliorate lots of the traditional concerns about um, people's yes. ability to engage with the technology. Right. I observed yeah. that, you know, when I bought a computer 20 years ago, it came with an instruction booklet fatter than a telephone directory. And nowadays I buy a phone or a computer and it doesn't come with instructions because the interface has got to the point where I can pick it up and give it to somebody who's never used it before and they'll be able to work it out. So I think some of that, you can't be complacent, but we should think about design as much as we think about traditional skills and learning. In fact, you do mention, just as an aside, the idea of benefits to support transition. I mean, that's the other side of the divide is one of the things that puts people off technology is 
fear of technology in terms of how on earth do I use this stuff? But there's also what's it going to do to my job? And I think you talk about a benefit system that helps people through this transition. I think we have to do better on that front. It seems clear that uh, if you know that the pace of change is accelerating, go back to the 19th century industrial revolution and the changes that played out in the workplace there probably were on a similar order of magnitude as someone's working life. Now, if you think that skills are turning over every five years or shorter, then it's obvious that we've got to do better at helping people to retrain and reskill and give people a better safety net for navigating a world where work is going to be more uncertain. And you know, you can think that that's a, a difficult, challenging thing, or you can figure out how we alter the system in order to help people cope. So you know, that glues together parts of the welfare reform debate. What do you think about lifelong learning? How do I improve the quality of financial markets to give people better access to insurance and so on and so forth? But the point about all of it is you've got to put the person at the center and help people at this tremendous opportunity to maximize your potential using technology. You have to help people access that and see it as a vast potential to be tapped rather than something like you were saying earlier that has to be you know, slowed down or stopped because in the end, you can't undo it, right? There's no going back to a world before the internet. We have to figure out how we live with it. So every manifesto needs a headline-grabbing idea. And the one that grabbed me when I was reading it was this idea of charter sectors, which I think is very interesting, which is a kind of take a sector and have a regulation-free zone, effectively. I'm probably misrepresenting it here to allow people to start from scratch. Talk us through charter sectors. You have to do something like this, right? So there are so many arenas where the technology that now exists would be enormously disruptive, but is boxed in by regulation that arose before the internet. And you see this traditionally in finance, you see it in ride hailing, you see a number of other sectors where somebody comes along, they've got a better, smarter way of doing something, which actually is good for consumers and good for innovation. But you crash straight into rules and regulations that say you can't do X, Y, Z because we're trying to protect for outcomes that were very different 20, 30, 40 years ago. And what experience shows is if you try to unpick all of these things one by one, we spend years and years and years arguing about what legislation needs to go through and you know, what are all the different um, vested interests that are going to be upset and how do we compensate them all and so on and so forth. Our view is there are going to be some arenas where you're much better cutting straight through all of that and saying, look, I'm going to set up an alternative framework here, which is not encumbered by all the legacy of the past, but is properly internet native. You don't dispense with protections and rules and regulation, but the point is that it's smart and effective rather than completely obsolete. Um, In the essay, what we talk about there, urban mobility would be an interesting candidate for this. Some of the aerospace and drones conversations, possibly, you know, post-pandemic, some of the environment around telehealth and telemedicine, perhaps, where We've seen so many of the regulations or the bureaucracy that used to tie people up and actually hampers good consumer outcomes. We've sliced through them because we've had to, because it's been an emergency situation. A little bit more of that energy, I think, would help to show that a country like the UK could be back on the forefront of the tech revolution rather than continuously playing catch up. And just to bring this conversation full circle, I mean, I'm a conservative and I've been talking to Tony Blair and to you about potentially how the progressive left can harness technology and build a narrative around it. 
please don't take this the wrong way, but you resemble Dominic Cummings in the sense that uh, you both think that an ARPA or a DARPA, the government research institute that is set up to fail, if you like, set up to think the unthinkable, again, I'm probably misrepresenting it, is a good idea. So tell me about your thoughts about an ARPA and what you think about Dominic Cummings and his ARPA. Are they the same thing? <laughs> Are they the same? Hey, look, <laughs> look, on one level, you can't get away from the fact that cutting edge technologies that folk are developing are going to shape the future. And you can't get away from the fact that government ought to be um, in the future business, right? If you say that I'm going to just surrender that kind of deep innovation to the philanthropists with deep enough pockets and the companies who've made enough money doing other things that they can build their moonshot factories, that I don't think is a viable place for politicians and a state that believes that it ought to have some purpose and direction to its existence. So I think that rings true for a lot of people. You have to accept then that that requires some state support and that you're going to back some things which are going to fail. And one of the things the government is pretty bad at is risk taking. I think the point where um, I would diverge from some of the narrative around um, what Dominic Cummings has been associated with is this question of, number one, how far do you drive this through government? So I think that this is absolutely makes perfect sense to start to foster these networks of external collaboration around you know, very esoteric parts of science and technology. I think you've got to be quite cautious about saying that I'm then going to bring the same kind of risk-taking, high tolerance for extreme personalities and so on and so forth into mainstream government delivery. If you go back to the history of ARPA, it's a tiny sliver of the Defence Department budget and a tiny sliver of the federal budget deployed in a very focused way. It's not a model for completely remaking the state. And I think if you step back more broadly, like one of the big risks for progressives and you know, moderates on the centre-left and centre-right is that if every time we have a conversation about technology, people want to react in a very defensive way because so much is now tainted by association with the current incumbents in number 10, that puts us all in a bad place. You actually have to advance a vision of radical change with technology, which is about optimism rather than being divisive. It's about enabling people rather than trying to control the whole environment. And it's about moving forward by building on what we've got rather than thinking that the only way to get started is to burn it all down. We've got to build this agenda, otherwise the future is lost. Well, on that optimistic note, <laughs> Chris, thank you very much for joining us. A, a podcast that uh, I think just about worked with one guest in New York, one in London and one in Edinburgh. But uh, the uh, clunky technology that still exists has pulled us all together for what I think was an absolutely fascinating discussion. I have to say that listening to you and Tony Blair talking about technology is incredibly refreshing, probably from a selfish point of view, because it is the area I'm most interested in, the nexus between technology, innovation and public policy. And I do think that it's an odd thing, but you guys really are the only people articulating this agenda, certainly in the UK, in such a clear and concise way. So I'm really grateful to you and to Tony Blair for spending time with me and Ari. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.